Justice Tech Pros here. Happy New Year to everybody. Um, with the uh, New Year's Day off, I actually was catching up on some of my shows uh, that I enjoy watching. Well, I had some time time to enjoy with the family and time to relax. And I gave that show a, wa- uh, a rewatch uh, that I mentioned a while back. It's called Exhibit A on uh, Netflix. And I enjoy watching these things because I also believe it helps prepare me for my occupation and prepares me in the sense that it opens up my mind up to make sure that certain things aren't missed. You know, I try to read related um, items, uh, related subject matter and watch uh, documentaries all that are kind of intertwined and kind of related to the legal field and and realm uh, because I believe a lot of the time it'll help you prepare. You know, unfortunately, when you're watching other uh, other people who have suffered, you are able to prepare and to try to prevent certain things that took place on their case from taking place on your case or on, you know, um, clients' cases. And, uh, you know, on uh, the episode I was watching was Exhibit A. It's broken down into four parts. And the first part I was watching was um, video forensics. And it was... Um, very interesting, you know, it's an interesting segment and they go, you know, it talks about, they they go on to spotlight a specific case. It was a guy, George Powell in Texas, and I'll get into that in a bit, but uh, when it started off, you know, they, they're showing a uh, forensic analysis expert on, on video forensics and the uh, gentleman is talking about how, um, you know, you can't always believe what's on a video tape. And, he, and he's quoted, he actually says, um, he, he's always nervous when someone says this case is all about the video. And he goes on to explain how video by um, definition is actually a trick because a video is, uh, you know, all mini snapshots, all mini pictures that are then played out to form the video. So he was explaining how it, it, it can be deceitful and it's not always as it appears. Uh, for, he gave an example how if you get a, a um, video of, of a weapon being discharged and you'll see certain sparks come out of the muzzle. So you see three sparks, one would assume that three shots were fired. And he was explaining that that's not accurate because it all has to do with the um, the uh, speed of the camera filming the, the muzzle blasts. And if the camera you know is at a slower speed, it's not going to pick up every every individual shot. It'd have to be at a high-speed camera to pick up each time the weapon's discharged. So we just kind of use that as an example that even though something's on video, it also has to be interrogated. And I actually like the way he used that word for, for video. He almost made it like a witness where he says interrogated, basically to put it under scrutiny. And I'm going to play um, an excerpt um, uh, speaking about that. We're going to assume the video is inaccurate. We want to know how much we can rely on this video. So I'm going to interrogate this witness. And I really like the way he puts that. You know, he's going to interrogate the witness. He's going to interrogate the video. He's going to put the video under scrutiny. And that's what's needed. I mean, that's what's important. It should be uh, It should be put to a test. And I think jurors need that explained to them. You know, when um, a case is being um, presented... And experts come on and, and they talk about video and they play video. You know, you could see the jurors enamored by it. And that's just human nature. They see something on video and they swear by it. 
it's so important to bring the other side of that. And you have to bring individuals such as this gentleman that show the other side. This way it kind of opens their mind up to understand so they could grasp all is not what they are seeing. You know, um, everything is not as it appears. What you're seeing is not always accurate. And you need somebody with intelligence and with the expertise to explain why that is. Not to just throw it out there because people will brush it off. You need a logical, scientific, scientific explanation for it. And, um, you know, watching this episode, it really, really drives that point home how important that is. And uh, he goes on, um, he goes on to, this is again the forensic uh, video expert, and I don't remember his name, but he goes on to also explain what I was just touching on, how the jury, you know, they automatically assume that the video is accurate. So I want to play a little excerpt uh, about that. Most people think that the video speaks for itself, an image is worth a thousand words. But these images are not what they appear to be in most cases. So now, as I move through the images, the camera is just another witness. It needs to be interrogated, needs to be examined and questioned. Questioned with suspicion. What happens is... See, and that, that's a great point. You know, he's saying it's got to be questioned with suspicion. And too many times, defense lawyers and whatnot, they, they, let, that, they let that aspect go. You know, they don't... They don't bring that to the forefront. And what I mean by that is if, if you know you have video evidence against your client, if you know that's one of the, one of the um, uh, discovery items that's going to be presented at, at trial where there's some type of video footage or anything that has a video capture, you need to be ready and you need to have an oppositional witness expert that's not only going to poke holes in it, but that's going to educate the jurors. Kind of do like I'm doing now, you know, open their eyes up to see that although something's on video, it's not always reliable and it has to be interrogated and it has to be pulled apart. And too many times that's just not done. I like this excerpt as well. You know, he, he explains how when you go to a crime scene, you have different witnesses. Everybody has their own point of view and their own interpretation of what took place. And, you know, the investigators talk to everybody and they get that interpretation. And he, and he explains how video is no different. You know, there's its interpretation on the video as well, and it has to be dissected, and it has to be interrogated. So I'm just going to play that. When we look at a crime scene, we have witnesses. We ask all the witnesses, what did you see? What did you perceive? Everybody should have a different perception. The video is no different. The camera might have a wide-angle lens. The camera might be more sensitive to low light. We never look at the camera as a foolproof witness, because in most cases, it's not going to be. The expectation of the public is if it's on camera, it's real and it's reliable. It's not. See, and that and that's that's so important. I mean, what he says is the expectation of the public is if it's on camera, it's real and it's reliable. And he says it's not. You know, once a trial starts, it's very rare that you hear that side of it and you hear somebody from that perspective breaking down a video and breaking down how what they're seeing may not be accurate. And going into detail of why it's not accurate and really explaining the rationale behind it, the scientific reasoning behind it, just to enlighten the jurors and let the jurors realize what they're looking at, um, there's more to it. And the reason why there's more to it is because of, you know, A, B, and C. And then they play, they lay it all out for the, uh, for the jurors. And it, you don't realize the impact that that could have. 
you know, because once it goes, once trial starts and the jurors start seeing these things and they hear it and they have that, and if they feel what they're looking at is 100% accurate and what the prosecutor is telling them is on the is on the tape is what is representative, what's playing out, and there's nothing to rebut that. You know, that's a, that's a serious problem. That's a serious um, a defect in the defense. And you have to fill that gap, and you got to make sure you have that ready to go when when trial starts. And just to give you um, the backstory on this episode and, you know, what it was uh, based on, um, the whole uh, video forensics aspect of it could be applied to any case you know, that uses that type of technology. And um, I've encountered it in our last trial. And I went, and I touched on this on one of the prior episodes where they were making a big deal, um, or I should say they were focusing on not making a big deal because it is an important piece of the, um, of the discovery. But they were focusing on and making it matter of fact that the, um, the car on the video was definitely, without a doubt, the automobile owned by one of the defendants. And they failed to mention, whereas all you could guarantee that was on that video was that that was a generation of the of the car. In other words, they had a, um, I believe it was a fourth generation Hyundai, which was a car that was made between 2008, 9, 10, 11, and 12, or actually 9, 10, 11, 12. And the defendant owned a 2012 Hyundai. So all they could have really said was it was a fourth generation Hyundai. But the prosecution, you know, obviously they're not going to put it that way. They're going to say, this is the defendant's car. And what would have been so important was the defense to, to, to go on to talk about how, no, all you could really say is that this is a fourth generation Hyundai. You cannot say beyond a reasonable doubt that this is the defendant's car and even bringing an expert to support that. And it just goes to show how important those experts come to be because when it's not done, you know, the jury's left with that with that image that the prosecutor put in their head. The image of this is the car or the image of whatever they're seeing on the video is how the prosecutor wants it to play out. And just getting back to this Exhibit A, the story behind this, there was a gentleman by the name of George Powell and he was like a uh, up-and-coming rapper in uh, Texas. And he was trying to sell uh, CDs. He would sell his CDs and things like that. He'd hang out at gas stations selling his CDs. And and it, it, it goes into how I talk about how when you become a target. And this is, you know, it's a small town in Texas. And this guy, uh, he wasn't a friend of the cops. He was what they would call him a thug. You know, that's what they uh, uh, labeled him. He would always mess with the cops and... You know, he just, he got arrested a lot for a solicitation for selling his CDs and he was on their radar. So what happened was somebody robbed the gas station, uh, a couple gas stations. And right away you could see the, the cops were trying to make it as if this George Powell was the one responsible. Now the problem is <clears throat> when um, the robber walked into the convenience store, you know when you walk into a store sometimes they'll have the height markings on the door to signify just when somebody's walking in to almost scale it of how tall somebody is. So when this person walked in, uh, the, the um, one of the initial officers, the detectives looking at the video footage noticed that he was five foot six. And also the, um, the cashier said she was pretty much eye level with the uh, robber. 
and that was about five foot six, five foot seven. Now this wasn't good enough uh, because the guy George is six foot three, so this wasn't good enough for a lot of the uh, for the cops who wanted to target him. So they had to figure out how to make this work. And what's scary is what they did immediately was they opened up the hotlines, the tip lines, and they told anybody who calls in will get I think a thousand dollar tip for saying who it is. So some lady called and said she recognized it as the uh, the individual as the guy George. They put a uh, picture of the guy on the news. Now, of course, they didn't talk about the height difference. They just put a picture on the news, and somebody called and said they think it was the the guy named George. Now, one of the um, cashiers knew it wasn't George uh, because of the height, and she was familiar with the guy George because he would sell the CD, so she knew it couldn't have been him. So the detectives went to, I believe the robber robbed about four or five different gas stations. So they went around to the different gas stations so they could find one of the cashiers who kind of gave in. The original cashier who wouldn't give in, she kept actually, she was talking about how she was fighting with the detectives, telling them, no, it can't be George because I was able to see this guy in his eyes. And when George would come in, I would have to look up at him. So they kind of moved away from her and they focused on this other cashier. And it was crazy. I mean, they went in, they had about 15 different mugshots of people. And what this detective did was he covered every other one except for the guy George and one other one and told the cashier, well, it could be George, right? He just, out of 15 mugshots, he left two um, open and one of them was George and she pointed to that one. And that's how they got an identification. I mean, it's it's crazy what, what takes place here. And... Um, you know, and that was after the other cashiers wouldn't wouldn't go along with it. One of the cashiers, you know, wouldn't go along with saying it was the guy George. So again, it just goes into how they how they manipulate things. If they target somebody and they're going to do what they got to do to get that person on the hook, and it's insanity when you hear these things play out. And this guy's in jail for ten years now. It's going on ten years. And then what they did was the government brought in an expert. So they brought in there, and this guy's a quote-unquote expert because as the show went on, you found out this guy's credentials and he really wasn't an expert. So they brought in this guy, and this guy gave this whole model, and he said how the person on the video actually could have been six foot one. so he chalked that up, and that's how they were able to kind of come up with the nine-inch difference. Uh, the guy, George, is six foot three. The guy in the video was showing five foot six, five foot seven, but this supposed expert recreated... A model, and he said, um, you know, that he was uh, he was uh, really six foot one. And what's crazy is he really didn't give a, a legitimate explanation for it. It's just the jurors believed he was an expert, so the BS he was selling them, they just believed it because there was nobody to refute it, nobody to go against it. That's why you need that oppositional um, expert because you know he got on there, he said his nonsense, and they and they bought it. And if you don't have anybody who can refute that, you got a big problem. And it's all about, you know, like I always talk about the smoke and mirrors. That's what they did. They knew they had to get an expert and to use their smoke and mirrors. So <clears throat> when um, this show is going on how, you know, it was done incorrectly and, and what took place. And they wound up finding out that this expert never prior did he ever do a height identification. He was actually an accident recreationist expert. He never did height height identification. This was the first time he did it. But yet he was qualified to say that the guy in the video was six foot one. 
I mean, it was it was it was crazy. Uh, you know that this was the guy that they brought in, and he used this software called called Photo Module, Modular, and it was really just to impress the jury. It wasn't even the software that's supposed to be used for that kind of investigative work. It's just a 3D model uh, rendering software. You know, it's like if you're creating like a 3D character, so it's just a rendering software. It's not even used in that kind of uh, in that kind of way or fashion. And and he just used it to almost uh, mesmerize the jury, you know, to show, oh, look at this 3D model. It's just more of an impressive look to fool them. And that's what's scary. And because of, because of this, um, Texas was the first state in 2013, they passed a junk science law, which basically any convicted um, uh, individual based on bad science, they were able to get another shot because of things like this. Because... Once this was questioned and they showed that this guy had no basis for his supposed expert testimony and somebody was in jail over it, you know, they enacted that. And that's, that's, that's huge to have that, you know, because when they start throwing around this fake science and this BS science and passing off like fact, when it's nothing but a bunch of smoke and mirrors, it's dangerous. And so uh, the show goes on to then discuss how they they wound up the state once um the guy george's attorney who got involved to help his case they wrote the state board of forensic it's like the board of um state forensics out in uh texas for experts and they they questioned about about that um testimony that was given and what happened was the commission then assigned a new scientist, a new forensic expert to review the video footage. This wasn't from the defense team. This was actually from the state organization for the board, the state board commission. And they assigned a new um, forensic video expert. And what he did was he went to the jail and he actually got a 3D scanner. (coughs) And the scanner actually measured George. You know, it went throughout his whole body, took uh, thousands of images, uh, pictures of George uh, from head to foot, a 3D scan of his whole entire body, and then what they were able to do is recreate his actual physique and his actual body within the storefront. So they took an image of the storefront from the surveillance cameras of the perpetrator walking into the store, and they lined it up with the 3D analysis of George, and you were able to see instantly, it was like a nine-inch difference. It didn't even compare. So when the science is done properly then that's where you see results. But when it's done improperly and it's not challenged, it has devastating results. I mean, this guy's sitting in jail. You know, I didn't uh, research it to see if he got out. I'm going to check that out. But uh, he's sitting in jail as of this show, and this show just came out. And you know what? I actually just looked it up real quick on my phone, and he uh, he was released now. Uh, he was granted a retrial, and he's released pending his retrial based on everything going on. So, you know, these... uh. These documentaries do a lot of good. I mean, a lot of stuff gets... Unfortunately, there's not enough of them because there's so many innocent people who are away and there's not enough spotlighting them. But the ones that do come out, they do do a lot of good. One last excerpt I want to play is just from um, uh, one of the um, individuals who got involved in the case after the fact. He's talking about kind of what I hit on earlier where if somebody's given testimony and they're being passed along as an expert, it's hard to refute that if you're not an expert. So, you know, for the judge and for the 
jury, they, they just believe whatever the guy says. And I just want to play a little uh, piece along those lines. Sir, I- it's hard to call bullshit on a forensic science when your background is not in that forensic science. The judge doesn't know. If it sounds good to him or her, they're going to let it in. And I think jurors, you know, when in doubt, will the judge let it in? It must be good science. It must be good testimony. And that statement's so powerful, you know, and that's what the jurors think. The jurors think, well, if the judge let it in, it must be good. And that really runs the gamut on so many things. I mean, if you've been listening to all my prior episodes and they all kind of go into one another, and even now I, I, I'm enjoying the segments I'm doing on, on shows, I like breaking them down and just explaining them for the audience. And uh, like I said, they help me both uh, in my professional life and personal life. I just... I enjoy understanding how things work and how things are solved and how uh, wrongs are righted and things like that. And that statement's so powerful. When, when, when a judge lets something in, the judge doesn't realize what kind of message that sends to the jurors. By allowing things to be presented, a lot of the jurors believe, well, if the judge let it in, then it's good to go. And I think that's a lot of the... Um, then that falls into a lot of the assumptions, unfortunately, that defense counsel makes where I think maybe sometimes they feel they don't have to fight something because it's so in their mind blatantly obvious you know we'll we'll move on but that's just not the case I mean one thing I'm learning is you have to fight every single thing that pops up and you know you get experts you fight every expert you get the list from the government of who they're having as an expert witness you have to get a rebuttal expert witness it just has to go that way and you as the defendant, and even, you know, if you're part of the defense team, you, you got to fight for that. And you got to make sure that's what the lead defense attorney does. You know, they got to follow through on that. And, you know, it's uh, it's scary when you're part of a multi-defending case. You know, you may have instances where your co-defendants need an expert, but you really don't. It doesn't affect, say, your client, but your co-defendants need a, a rebuttal expert. And if they don't get that rebuttal expert, it could affect you, even though it may have nothing to do with you. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, when there's enough things, you know, enough mud thrown at the wall, sometimes something sticks. And uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, different defendants could get hit with almost shrapnel. You know, so it's so important for the teams when you're part of a team to all work together and everybody be on the same page and everybody um, fight to the best of their ability, you know, and if... If one of the defendants requires an expert, you got to push and make sure that that expert is used, is utilized. And if everybody agrees that they're going to get an expert, you got to hold them to it. Make sure that expert shows up and, and you know, um, does their job because it could have devastating impact. And, you know, that's that's the reality of it sometimes. And it's scary when you see how these things play out and you see... You know, the jury really has no idea and you see the tactics that the government will use and they'll bring in these quote unquote experts. But yet, if you have somebody of equal or greater caliber on the other side of it, they could destroy them. They can make something that was seemed so powerful um, mute. They can make it mean absolutely nothing meaningless if you have the right guy. And this... Um, this Netflix documentary, there's, there's other segments I'm going to, I'm going to rewatch. I've saw them a, a while back, but I'm going to rewatch and, uh, and do something similar on the next few episodes where I could just break them down. But the ones on Godiver dogs, ones on touch DNA, which I want to, um, 
I want to talk about that one because I found it I found it interesting uh, how the you know even myself when you hear DNA you just assume how conclusive it is but that's not the case either and I want to be able to cite some legitimate uh, sources for that before I begin to talk about it but that's a it's a, it's a really good show so try to watch it I think honestly things like that should be almost required watching for all potential jurors because you need to be aware of all these things all of these things and the state and the government they take advantage of the lack of knowledge that people have and they'll uh, they'll manipulate it you know and they'll use it they'll really make it bigger and make it seem more important than it really is and they'll they'll do a shell game you know almost like uh, where you're moving stuff around and you're not really revealing where the ball is under the shells you know you're just moving it around you know the ball's there you just don't know where it is and they kind of do that show game you know they move the facts around like that and you almost confuse the jury so much so that you know they just feel well this is above my head it's above my pay grade so if this expert's saying it i must not understand it so it must be true and it's such a devastating devastating logic and ideology because it's so dangerous to to believe that way and to feel and you know to to succumb to that you know if you if your life is in somebody's hands uh, a juror's hands and and they just they're buying into everything that the state saying, the government staying, the prosecution staying, and, and you don't have the right defense team fighting for you and putting up a defense to to refute these things. It's it's terrible. I mean, the the end result is is life ending, life changing at the very least. You know, bouncing around a little bit, I I, I have an article that a friend of mine sent me. It was uh, December 29th, How this uh, was in the uh, Daily News. Uh, New York Daily News, and it's uh, this Grafton Thomas, a Monty stabbing sub- suspect, was covered in blood when caught, is the headlines. Basically, this guy stabbed uh, Jewish worshippers with a machete, and they gave him bail, $5 million bail. And, you know, it's just amazing. They sent this to me, obviously, because uh, my friend <laughs> uh, has the same philosophy that I do, that it's amazing how some people get bail and some don't. And this is a prime example of it. I mean, you have this guy. I don't know who. what's more of a danger to society. This guy is bothering uh, poor Jewish people who are worshiping and celebrating Hanukkah. This lowlife's going in and stabbing them and, and attacking them with a machete. If that isn't a danger to society, I don't know what is. But yet they won't grant bail to somebody of Italian-American descent who has a, a stigma attached to them and is being charged with RICO. That person gets denied bail. And there's no there's no charges of uh, of uh, attacking somebody or uh, going after innocent people, but yet they don't get bail, and this guy gets bail. So I, I one day I need somebody to explain that to me because I just don't understand it. I don't understand these things. I don't understand what dictates that. The only thing that di- dictates that is personal vendettas. It's not going by what's fair and what's logical. That's just personal vendettas. If you feel somebody is um, uh, guilty of something or you feel they hold a, an alleged position in some kind of uh, enterprise and you just don't want to let them out because you want to put pressure on them, you don't give them bail. A guy like this, you can't really put pressure on, so you give him bail. And it's just, it's, you see things like that every day and it just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And you know, one of the items that I found interesting too 
and I'm jumping back and forth, but that's just my style. I'm sure you're getting used to that by now. But what was amazing was these cops in that Exhibit A, they called the guy George's wife down to the precinct. And and these are broke, you know, they're poor individuals. They don't have wealth. They need money. And they told his own wife, listen, if you give us a tip and just say it was your husband, you get $1,000 for the tip. It's like a tip chat line, whatever it is, a tip hotline. And they told her, if you tell us it's your husband, we'll give you $1,000. Now, she she was like, you know, it's not my husband, so I'm not going to lie and tell you that. And this poor woman could have used the money. She's raising two kids by herself. And that's what they dangle over their head. And again, it all just goes back to look at the tactics they use. And now let's say this guy, George, God willing, you know, everything turns out all right. He proves his innocence. Nothing's going to happen to any of these people. There's no accountability for the detectives involved, for the prosecutor who took this case on, for the supposed expert who just basically lied because he didn't have the uh, capabilities to investigate the case properly. So in my opinion, he just lied about his facts and lied about his conclusions. And there's no repercussions. There's no, no accountability on any of those parties. None of them have to answer for anything. Nobody loses a license, nobody gets uh, discharged, nobody gets fired, nobody gets fined, nobody gets put in jail, nothing. It's just, okay, well, you made a mistake. And nobody sees anything wrong with that. Well, I shouldn't say nobody, because by uh, going by my emails, going by my friends, going by my contacts, clients, there's a lot who do. But the problem is the, the general public is, is missing it. And I could tell based on a lot of the juries and a lot of decisions being rendered lately that they're just missing out on it. They're not understanding it. You know, they're not going by the facts of the case. And if you get a chance, definitely check out that Exhibit A on Netflix. It's a, it's a, great, um, it's a great show to watch. I'm going to watch the other three uh, segments again. Uh, like I said, one was, um, you had the video forensics, then you had the Godiver. Uh, one was DNA, and I forgot the 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 third one, but uh, I'll see. Uh, in six days, I'm having Andrew Garrett on from Garrett Discovery. We're going to talk about the cell site technology and how that's considered a ju- junk science in many aspects. Uh, so that should be an interesting episode. I'm also trying to uh, arrange to have um, a couple attorneys on. I think I mentioned. Uh, to you guys earlier, so I'm just trying to, you know, with the new year, it's, uh, it was a little hectic the last two, um, two, three weeks, so I'm going to try to focus on that, I think that'll be entertaining, I'm trying to come up with things that'll be entertaining, while at the same time, everybody could learn from and benefit from, there's also a lot of listeners um, that write in certain stories, some they don't want to share on the podcast, so, you know, um, thank you for writing me, I appreciate it and I am interesting in reading it, but if you do want to share, just let me know because I'll be glad to uh, read it uh, aloud just to let the uh, listeners also have some insight on what you're going through. And so with uh, with that, I think that's pretty much all I have for today. Um, that episode was on my mind, so I wanted to talk to you guys about it. And um, if you have anything that you would want to hear discussed or brought up or touched on, feel free to drop uh, an email, info at justicetechpros.com. Just put podcast in the subject, and that'll be forwarded to me, and I'll, and I'll check it out. Um, 
to that, I uh, just want to say I appreciate the listeners. We're growing at a nice steady pace. It is increasing, so I think uh, I think that we're doing some good here. I think that people are enjoying the content, and I'll continue to do my part and try to educate and expand and and really dissect different things that come up that could influence and could help prepare the general public to be uh, a more informed juror. And also, it's just good for everybody to be aware of, of what's what's taking place and what goes on. And that's it for today. Talk to you soon.